Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Said Wahab, and today we return to the Ummah's messy capital to discuss the election of its fourth Caliph. Remember that to get the job, you had to get everybody on board by having them pledge their allegiance to you, a prospect which was now immensely complicated by the fact that the Arabs had just killed their Caliph. Uthman had many detractors towards the end of his reign, but they were not united when it came to who would replace the old man and how. Even more dangerously, many of the caliphate's governors and leading men were Umayyad relatives of the slain caliph, outraged at the spilling of their kin's blood. We're still on controversial grounds, and the differences we find in the various narrations over what had taken place in the capital reveal a deeply divided community and the man chosen to lead it will be faced with the insurmountable task of putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Episode 12, Ali bin Abi Talib ended last episode with a capital in disarray. We had unruly rebels, a murdered caliph, and no clear path forward. Maybe it's all this recent action we've been covering, but I think we should take some more time today for analysis and commentary. It should help us get a better feel for what's been going on. I mean, the Arabs had just killed their caliph, and you know there's a lot to unpack when a previously tribal people organize and march on their capital with political demands. So what's a good place to start? Maybe who exactly were these rebels? By Egyptian and Iraqi armies, I did not mean any of the settled populations of those lands, few of whom were allowed to bear any weapons, even in service of the caliphate. No, the men who marched on Medina were all Arabs, most originally from the peninsula, and many from tribes which, until recently, had little to do with Mecca, Quraysh, or the Ummah. Now, it may seem, from our point of view, that these tribes must have been thrilled about being united, right? that they loved it for all the power it gave them, and look how big their armies were, and look how many lands they could enter, and how much booty and tribute they could earn. But the reality was that until very recently, these tribes were fiercely independent. Tribal leaders weren't dummies, and they may have appreciated some of the things I just listed, but a united caliphate was one in which they had very little power. Now, I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm not trying to say that the tribal elders all conspired to kill Uthman, but I want to remind you that this Arab unity thing It was all very new and still extremely fragile. The Arab chiefs could recognize the tribal logic inherent in Uthman's decision-making. It was a kind of cue for them to play by the old rules again. So, for example, if Uthman was going to marry off his many daughters to leaders from the noblest Arab tribes, bringing them closer to both the Umayyad clan and power within the caliphate, then it made sense for tribal leaders to try and up their own value by being strong-willed, uncooperative, and borderline hostile until they were appeased. Besides, now that the two empires, which previously defined the edges of the Arab universe, had been subdued, unity was no longer at a premium, at least not in the lands from which the Arab troops had mutinied. It's also worth remembering that only the Egyptian troops had entered the city. The Iraqi troops had arrived later, and the Kufan rebels were led by none other than Madik al-Ashtar. He had developed a deep respect for Ali bin Abi Talib ever since the Hashemite cousin of the Prophet had first tried to mediate between the Kufans and the previous caliph. Sources say that Malik and the Iraqi armies were surprised at how agitated their Egyptian counterparts were when they arrived. After being caught up on all the details, some of their more extreme members joined the Egyptians in their siege, 
But Madik heeded Ali's advice and ordered everyone to camp outside this capital and to not bother any of its people. Before returning to our narrative, I should note once again that this period contains multiple conflicting accounts of how things unfolded, reflecting just how pivotal this moment in early Arab history was. Remember, multiple conflicting narrations means multiple oral histories, which implies that various Arab tribes defined their positions within, or relations to, the Ummah in different ways, always citing versions which justified their choices. You'll see what I mean more as we move along. Most of the conflicting narrations focus on the remaining members of the Council of Qurayshi elders, who chose Uthman to lead the Ummah 12 years earlier, especially Ali bin Abi Talib, Al-Zubayr bin Awam, and Talha bin Ubaidullah. Now this makes sense, as the three were probably the only men in the city who could hope to get enough popular support to legitimate their claim, going by both their precedence in Islam and their overall influence within the Ummah. While Al-Zubayr was famous for his heroics during the conquest of Byzantine Egypt, he and his son had since fought alongside the armies of Kufa during their conquest of the Sassanid Empire. Talha had strong ties to Basra as he conducted much trade through the city and he had a large estate, which he often stayed in there. He had also ingratiated himself to the rebels during the early honeymoon phase of the siege by giving out food to them freely, earning him some bewildered chastisement from Uthman. Ali bin Abi Talib had earned the trust and respect of many of the rebels when he attempted to broker a deal between them and Uthman back before the siege, and more importantly, he was already immensely popular in Medina. Despite the cacophony of all the different opinions on what took place in the capital during this period, it's not difficult to see that Ali was the only real choice the rebels had. Some insist that Zubair and Talha were both offered the job and turned it down, but remember that even during the election of Uthman 12 years earlier, Ali was the only contender until the very end, so it's difficult to endorse a tale that has the position almost going to someone else. If Talha and Zubair really were approached, it was probably by a small group of men loyal to them. Only one man could command overwhelming support in Medina. Ali heard about the caliph's demise while he was at a nearby mosque with his son Muhammad ibn al-Hanafi. His two other sons, Hassan and Hussein, were meant to guard Uthman's house during the siege, but like most of its defenders, they left when the caliph had asked them to, something a few narrations say their father scolded them for. Ali was approached by some of the rebels at his home later that night and asked to take leadership of the community. He refused, saying that if they wanted him to be caliph, then house calls like this weren't going to do anything for them. They should pledge their allegiance in public at the mosque. And so that's what a large group of them did the next day. But Ali turned them down again, saying that he would only be caliph if all the people pledged their allegiance. As the day went on, more and more locals offered Ali their pledges. Medina and its people loved Ali. He was one of the few members of Quraysh who did not show special favor to his tribesmen. Later that afternoon, Talha and Zubair both came and offered their support, a detail that's both widely reported and strongly contested, with some sources saying that they only did so after being tricked or threatened by the rebels. This was a big deal because the two were elders of Quraysh, and their pledges would have gone a long way towards legitimating Ali as the new caliph, just as they had when they selected Uthman all those years ago. Following this, Ali returned to the mosque later that afternoon and accepted the people's pledges and the role of caliph. His first act was to open the treasury of Medina and distribute what was in it equally amongst the people. The best interpretations of these events, in my opinion, focus on the fact that in deferring the leadership until the entire city was on his side, 
Adi ensured that his supporters among the rebels were now outnumbered and could not dictate how he was to run things. Indeed, shortly after his election, the Egyptian armies made a quick retreat back to Fustat, surely longing for the relative safety of their own military city. Other interpretations I found reasonable stress the parts where Ali is quoted in the sources explaining to his son that he had a religious duty to lead the community and that he could not shrink away from it for personal or political gain. Obviously, Ali's acceptance of the role has since generated some very different opinions, with critical ones depicting Ali as a scheming usurper and sympathetic ones celebrating this moment as a sort of ultimate victory for justice. We know his first act because it's something detractors and supporters both report. His gesture of handing out the contents of the treasury, in my opinion an obvious and largely symbolic appeal to the days of the Prophet and the early caliphs, is something his critics point to as a veiled attempt to pay the rebels for their hard work removing his predecessors. In contrast, pro-Hashemite histories point to the act of redistributive justice as proof of how far removed Ali ibn Abi Talib was from worldly considerations, saying he would have just kept the money for himself if he'd been motivated by greed. So despite agreeing on the fact, these two narrations basically talk past one another, and now imagine how discordant it can get when they disagree on the facts. While you'll have to imagine it, because I won't be relating any separate this-narrative-that-narrative tales going forward, I worry it's too disorienting. Instead, I will just highlight the stuff that makes the most sense. But before that, now that we have a new commander of the faithful, let's say a few words about the Ummah's fourth caliph. You may know a lot of this already if you've been paying attention, so I'll keep my remarks brief. By this point, he was 58 or 59 years old, he was a prophet's cousin, his ward, and his son-in-law. Ali is widely considered to have been the first Muslim and is often praised by the Prophet for his faith and behavior. When Quraysh were persecuting Muhammad, Ali protected his cousin and thereafter fought bravely for the Ummah in almost all its battles. He was a fierce warrior and his skill with the blade led Muhammad to gift him the Hashemite clan sword, Dhul Fiqar. Today it's thought of as having been a curved double-tipped blade, but those are probably later fabrications due to its name. All the sources really focus on is how heavy it was. Ali married the Prophet's daughter Fatima, and she bore him two sons and two daughters. It's obvious from the Prophet's behavior later in life that he considered Ali, Fatima, and their progeny to be his closest family. Ali's supporters were convinced that in his last sermon following his final pilgrimage, the Prophet had unambiguously named Ali as his successor. Others argued that the Prophet was merely stating that Ali was his heir in all worldly things. Either way, it was clear to everyone that Ali was one of the closest people to Muhammad. I've repeatedly called the two cousins, but considering their upbringings, their relationship was much tighter than that. It had fraternal and filial aspects to it, since they had been raised in each other's households. It is truly difficult for us with our modern conception of what nuclear and extended families are and what healthy relationships within them look like to understand many of these tightly knit tribal bonds. Anyway, like the Prophet, Ali remarried only after his first wife, Fatima, passed away. The two sons she bore him, Hassan and Hussein, will be very important to our story and Arab and Islamic history more generally. The thing about Ali is that everything about him ends up being super important. For example, from our vantage point of today, we have one of two major remaining branches of Islam, basically defining its identity as being the ideological descendants of Ali's partisans. Now, it's a long way between what we're talking about in this podcast and the Shia we have today. And on it, pretty much everything about him becomes meaningful in some sense. I could talk about Ali forever. 
I think he is by far the most written about member of his generation, and hopefully I can flesh out some of why that ends up being the case as we progress. But for now, I'll suffice with reminding you that apart from his important children, Hassan and Hussein, he had two others who will play a smaller role, a stepson named Muhammad bin Abi Bakr, who was part of the Egyptian troops and may or may not have been personally involved in the caliph's assassination, and another Muhammad, the one he was with when he heard about the caliph's death, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. Now, let's wrap up our intro on Ali with a refresher on his role in the caliphate thus far. There was some friction between Ali and Abu Bakr after the latter's election, and Ali never joined the first caliph's armies in their many wars. Instead, he remained in Medina and acted as a sort of judge, helping resolve disputes between people by resorting to the Qur'an and the example set by the Prophet. He maintained the same position under Umar and Uthman, and presented an important political counterweight to the third caliph's clannish excesses. Remember that it was Ali who insisted on the administration of the Islamic punishment to the Umayyad governor of Kufa, Al-Walid bin Uqba. His willingness to stand up to the elites of Quraysh endeared him to many Muslims from smaller tribes, and especially to the people of Medina, who had felt increasingly irrelevant as the Meccan caliphs stopped relying upon them in quite the same way the Prophet had. These and others constituted a relatively small faction, many of whom being early Muslims of considerable prominence, who thought that Ali was the only rightful leader of the community. They were enough of a majority in the capital to secure his rise to leadership. I came across a really nice narration as I was researching this episode. Although it is pretty widely reported, I have a difficult time believing it, as it's one of those suspiciously prophetic ones, and one of its main characters is the always entertaining Al-Mughira bin Shu'bah. He's counted among four men whom the Arabs esteemed for their shrewdness, and as such, a lot of literally unbelievably wise words are ascribed to him. I know I said I'd stay away from Arabic terms, but I'll make an exception in the case of the word dahiyah, plural of which is duhat, which the Arabs used for men like these. The four duhat of the Arabs, the four shrewds of the Arabs, if you'd like, are all going to be important to our story, so it's worth our while to pay them some special attention now. A pair have already come up, Amr ibn al-As, the first governor of Egypt, and Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, the governor of Syria, were two of the four Arab duhat. Mughira was the third, and the fourth was an intelligent and promising freedman who was working for him, Ziyad ibn Abi, which literally translates as Ziyad, son of his father, the Arab designation for an unclaimed son. He's a really fascinating character who goes from being a nobody in tribal Arabia to one of its most influential figures, but we'll get to see all that in good time. These four men were considered the shrewdest of the Arabs, and some sources even give each an attribute to crown their reputation. Muawiyah is said to have been the most patient about bearing slights and insults. Amr is said to have been the most skilled at manipulation and verbal gymnastics. Mughira is praised for his foresight and wisdom, and Ziyad for his eloquence and administrative sense. We will cover some of the acts which earned these men their fame as duhat, I already skipped many fanciful ones, like a conversation ascribed to Mughira, in which he debated the Shahinshah and his general before the all-important battle of Qadisiyya, and left them dumbfounded at the infinite wisdom he professed to having received from his religion. In any case, sorry about the long introduction, here is the story. It is mainly related through Ali's cousin Abdullah ibn Abbas. On his way back from the pilgrimage, he learned that Ali had become caliph a few days earlier and so he headed straight for Ali's house in Medina. Now when he arrived, he was told to wait, as Ali was speaking to al mughira in private. 
The two were done shortly, and Abdullah congratulated his cousin, heard how everything had gone down, and finally asked him what his previous guest had wanted. Ali said that this was the second time Al-Mughira had come to him in as many days, and that each time he had said something different. So this piqued Abdullah's interest, and he asks Ali, okay, so tell me more. Ali reveals that Maghira had come to him the day before, then informed him that he had an urgent task incumbent upon him immediately. He told the caliph that he must quickly write letters to his governors, telling them about what happened in the capital, and more importantly, confirming them in their positions, especially the Umayyads, and first among them, Muawiyah. He further urged Ali to appoint Amr ibn al-As, al-Zubayr, and Talha as governors of Egypt, Kufa, and Basra, respectively, arguing that it was only after these men felt secure that they would bring him the pledges of those in the community. Afterwards, al-Mughira said, Ali would have the power to truly shape his ummah the way he saw fit. Ali listened to this and responded by saying that nothing on earth could compel him to appoint unfit men to these all-important positions, that governors ought to be an example to those they govern, and that it was the corruption of the men whom al-Mughira now recommended that had led to this mess to begin with. After hearing this response, al-Mughira said he would think further about the caliph's opinion before taking his leave. When al-Mughira returned to him the next day, he said that upon further reflection he saw the wisdom in Ali's ways, fully agreed with him, and wished the caliph all the best. After hearing this story, Abdullah told his cousin that al-Mughira was honest the first day and dishonest the next. Abdullah ibn Abbas, telling this story years later, added that within a few days al-Mughira had left the capital. It'll become clear why this story is suspiciously prophetic over the next few episodes. But while we are at it, here's another piece of advice that Ali is said to have brushed aside this early in his reign. We're told that his eldest son, Hassan, advised him to leave Mecca in secret after he was first approached by the rebels. He told his father that if he abandoned them, the Arabs would fight amongst themselves for a while before turning to him for salvation. Whereas, if he stayed, he would be tainted by his association with the murderous rebels and that others who coveted the leadership of the community would use that to rally people against him. Ali's response is a little different in each source, in some focusing on the duty of leading the ummah towards the good, and in others pointing out that his detractors would endeavor to find fault with his actions no matter what he did. Either way, he was very dismissive. So just a few days into his role as caliph, and Ali had already been warned multiple times about potential opponents. Despite being pledged to overwhelmingly in Medina, Ali did not get everybody on board. I mentioned that Zubair and Talha both pledged to Ali, but what I didn't say was that the fourth and final surviving member of the council that elected Uthman did not. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was approached by Ali after his election and asked whether there were any reasons for his abstention. According to the version of events I'm going by, Sa'ad replied saying that he did not doubt Ali's worthiness, but that the Prophet had asked his people to stay away from dissension and he was worried that pledging to Al-Adi before the entire Ummah was united would be considered picking a side and technically qualify as splitting the community. So here, we get even more proof of how disunited things were. The second caliph's pious son, Abdullah ibn Umar ibn al-Khattab, whose religiosity and demeanor apparently reminded everyone of the Prophet, also withheld his pledge, citing the same logic. Some sources say that Ali disagreed with them, others that he praised their devotion to piety, but all narrations end with Adi accepting their arguments and asking his supporters not to disturb nor pressure them. Seeing how the new caliph was dealing leniently with all this non-compliance, 
The few remaining Umayyads, including an injured Marwan, now risked leaving the granary in which they had been hiding for the last few days. Marwan especially had every reason to be fearful for his life. Rightly or otherwise, up until recently, pretty much everyone blamed Marwan for the way things played out with the third caliph. He had very few friends left in town, and he and other Qurayshis who were disgruntled at the election of their least favorite tribesmen now made for home, Mecca. Scandalously, they were joined by Talha and Zubair, both of whom now recanted their pledges of loyalty to Ali. This was a huge deal. Recanting your pledge is basically the tribal equivalent of betraying someone publicly, and this is where we get narrations explaining that they had been forced to submit to Ali at sword point, or offering other exculpatory scenes. Who knows if it's true or not, but considering that he basically let Sa'ad, another member of the all-important council of Qurayshi elders, not pledge to him and stay in the city, it's highly unlikely that Ali tried to coerce anyone. What's more likely is that they thought they now had a chance at leading the community. They were Qurayshi elders after all. Okay, so we have a lot going on today, and hopefully slowing it down and some analysis will help us digest all that's taking place. I want to share my favorite take on these events, although unlike the rest of our materials, it comes from a contemporary Arab source. Ali al-Wardi was an Iraqi sociologist who wrote extensively on many subjects, including early Arab history. Now I'll just be paraphrasing here from his master thesis from Texas, no less. So if you're interested, maybe check it out for yourself. Dr. Wardi approaches this rebellion against authority from a sociological point of view, and he says that the masses rarely rise up against the system without a cue from the upper class giving them the license to do so, usually due to internal squabbles among the elites getting out of hand. In his reckoning, the upper class in the caliphate was Quraysh, and things got out of hand when a subset of this elite class, the Umayyads, tried to rise above the rest of the Quraysh by centralizing power in their hands alone. According to him, this led the rest of the tribe to agitate against the ambitious clan both secretly and openly. He cites plenty of evidence to drive the point home, and Amr ibn al-As and Aisha, wife of the Prophet and daughter of the first caliph, provide him with some of the most damning material, with letters going out to the provinces complaining about Uthman's destruction of Muhammad's legacy. So this is what Dr. Wardi says set the stage for the rebellion, but then he adds a wrinkle. He reminds readers that instigating the masses doesn't mean you control them and that the Qurayshis who called for an uprising against Uthman were dismayed by the replacement the masses chose, and so they chose to withdraw from the capital and investigate other possibilities. Like us, Dr. Wardi enjoys the benefit of writing from a future where we know how things turned out. His version of why the Ummah fractured the way it did is a favorite of mine because it avoids any moralistic explanations and instead appeals to history and human nature. His explanation has three factions, and that's exactly what we begin to see going forward. There was the new caliph and his supporters, so far largely restricted to Medina, as he was yet to send governors to accept the support of the Arabs from the provinces. There was the rest of Quraysh, which was withdrawing and amassing in their home city of Mecca, most of whom didn't get along with the new caliph, knowing full well that he would never privilege them over the rest of the ummah. And finally, there were the remaining Umayyads, who were still governing pretty much the rest of the caliphate. The fact that rebellious armies had come out of Iraq and Egypt did mean that Umayyads there could expect hostilities from the locals, but Syria was an entirely different story. Muawiyah had been in charge of the rich province for decades by now. He commanded its people's respect, and perhaps most importantly, he had a loyal and capable army. 
Okay, so before we wrap up this episode, I just want to set the stage for what's to come by discussing what happened when Ali set out his governors to all the other provinces. First off, his picks were a clear departure from the Qurayshi caliphs before him. They were predominantly either members of the Ansar of Medina or fellow Hashemites from his own clan. I suppose he didn't really have much choice if he wanted to rely on the earliest Muslims, but up until this point, literally no Hashemite had been in charge of any administration, so it's a notable change nonetheless. The two men Ali picked as governors for the Yemeni provinces, a Hashemite and the native of Medina, met little resistance. When they arrived at their cities, however, they found that the previous governors, both Umayyad loyalists, had absconded, taking with them all the contents of their local treasuries. On Malik al-Ashtar's advice, Ali chose to keep Abu Musa al-Ash'ari in his role as governor of Kufa, as its people had chosen him after rebelling against his predecessor just over a year ago. In Basra, he replaced the Umayyad Abdullah bin Amir with another Medinan native, a son of the Ansar. Abdullah bin Amir had also left the city just before the new governor's arrival, however, so when his replacement got there, he instead found a deputy of Abdullah's refusing to submit, but he was subdued with little effort and the new governor took control of the town. For Egypt, Ali picked Qais bin Abada, one of the most popular men in Medina, denying the Egyptian rebels' request to have Muhammad bin Abi Hudayfa confirmed. The caliph's behavior makes it clear that he had and wanted nothing to do with the Egyptian rebels nor their ambitious cheerleader. The new governor, Qais, arrived at the garrison city with only a few men and proceeded to read the letter from the caliph confirming him as governor to those gathered at the mosque in Fustat. The majority rejoiced and he received their pledges of support, both for himself and for Ali. A solid minority, however, were those Umayyad loyalists, you know, the ones who benefited from Umayyad largesse, and these protested, saying that they needed more time before submitting. Now, like I said, Qais was a highly respected personality. He would have been the chief of the Ansar if they'd had one. It was in his father's house that they had gathered the, the day the Prophet passed away to discuss what would happen next. So these Umayyad loyalists who held out against him really didn't want to pick a fight with such a prestigious member of the Ummah. Instead, they proposed that they would withdraw to a village near faraway Alexandria and not bother him in any way if he just allowed them to. Qais found all of this respectable, and in short order, he managed to administer the province and keep its peace. Muhammad bin Abi Hudayfa felt shorted by the new caliph, as you would imagine, and he went to have a word with him after the arrival of his popular replacement. Unhappily for him, however, the ever-vigilant Muawiyah had already posted spies along the roads connecting the various parts of the caliphate. On his way to the capital sometime in August, the ex-caliph's stepson was apprehended and brought to the powerful governor of Syria, who had him imprisoned and, in some narrations, straight-up killed. So, with Qais's successful installation as governor, Ali could count on the support of Yemen, Iraq, and now Egypt. Now, all these places still had Umayyad loyalists, or at least some who were upset at recent developments for whatever reason, but pledges were taken, and that's where I'm drawing the line. This meant that only Syria and Mecca were now outside the caliph's grasp, the first being solidly in Umayyad hands, while the second was just chock-full of angry Qurayshis who couldn't wait to oppose the new caliph. Each of these three factions will try for the leadership of the community, but we've covered enough for today, and let's leave that discussion for the next time on the caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>